Open in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to read verses uh, 3 to 5 here at the beginning, but while you're turning there, just a a few things to uh, note here at the church. Upcoming uh, September the 23rd is our fall festival, and it is such a privilege to be able to use our space across the street here, 3101 Rock Quarry Road, as as a a launching pad of love as a place where we can meet our neighbors to let them know that we care about them. And this will be a time when you can invite friends and neighbors to come and just to experience some fun. And so we need all hands on deck. And so we would love for you as a church to sign up to volunteer. There's tons of ways you can do that. But uh, we just encourage you go to our Friday email and sign up to volunteer. Make it a priority to be there. Uh, Saturday, uh, the 23rd of September, between 3 and 5. But thankful to God for that opportunity. Also, next week, we begin a new sermon series that'll last 15 weeks, all the way to Christmas. And it is going to be a flyover of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in a series entitled The Pentateuch, Where It All Begins. And so, Pastor Ron Jour begins us off next week in Genesis 1 and 2, and so I'm looking forward to that series, and I pray that you would uh, just settle your hearts and ask the Lord to meet us all in power through His Word. Now I want to read, uh, I want to read, yep, I'm still there, okay, and I do want to read, even though I said it three times, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, and then I'll pray. The Word of God says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Father, This is your word. And we just thank you so much that you have chosen to speak to us through your word. Make our hearts humble and open to receive you. We confess that you're here. Believe that you are for your children. We ask that by the power of your Spirit that you would not only allow us to know intellectually different things, but Father, we ask for the Spirit to give us a warm heart, affection for Jesus, a transformed life that knows we are loved and lives a life of love. Father, make us open to your faithful word to hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. While on sabbatical, uh, my wife and I took a trip to Colorado. There was a ministry that gives housing and a free rental car if you can get there in a town a little bit outside of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I didn't even know what this was. And if you can get there. So we got there and we had six days in a area that was different than I had ever experienced before. When you turn into a subdivision there, they call it a ranch, and the subdivisions are about 800 to 1,500 acres. 
That's their subdivisions. When we turned off the road to go to our house, we drove up a mountain 13 minutes just to get to the place where we were staying. And as you sat up there off the balcony of this place, this is the view. One morning there was a rainbow. And it was just such a stamp of God's kindness to give us what was really unique, a slow pace that we had not experienced before. There was one day when we took what was recommended to us, a two-hour trip away from this area to a place called Glenwood Canyon. And as we went to Glenwood Canyon, my wife and I had done some research and we had decided to ride bikes through the canyon along the Colorado River. Yeah, it was amazing. And so we rode, ended up riding that day about 38 miles. Now before you give us too much props, these were electric bikes. And so these bikes had four different speeds and now before you take away the props, now you had to you had to pedal in order for it to go and you could choose to pedal, you know, at your own pace and let it ride for you or you could choose to really grunt it out at level 1. So anyway, we rode for 38 miles one through the canyon, and another one to a small town called Carbondale, 12 miles, out, 12 miles out, 12 miles in. And this is one of the views of that we were riding when we were going to Carbondale. That's me taking a picture, not necessarily recommending the safety of this moment, but I'm riding a bike, taking a picture of my sweet wife, riding towards this massive mountain. But as we were riding, I felt like an addict suffering from withdrawal. It was pretty unique. I didn't know how to slow down. Like, here's how sick my brain was. I would ask my wife, so how, how fast are you going? She would yell back, I'm on number three. So I would put myself on number two to see if I could keep up. Trying to like somehow compete or win something that no one really cared and there was no competition to be won, but I would still do this. Then I realized the weirdness of that moment and so I was just like, okay, I'm going to quote scripture. And so I spend time quoting scripture, which the Lord used in powerful ways, but it was still this sense of I had to be doing, I had to be doing. So I had headphones in. I started listening to a book that I had been listening to, a book that had really helped my heart. But while I was listening to it, it just felt like information. And by the time we got to Carbondale and we're turning back around, the clouds began to come in. The wind started picking up, but I was still struggling with not being able to do enough to find the joy that I was seeking on this sabbatical. Well, the Lord struck my heart. And it was just with this simple idea, stop listening and just start looking. Well, as I was riding back, all of a sudden the clouds get a little darker and the rain starts coming. In Colorado, it doesn't rain very much. And so I guess when it does, it does it with gusto. So rain comes down and the wind is blowing really hard. So I'm riding, my wife is ahead of me, we're riding, and it felt like water knives hitting you in the face and in the arm. Now I know water knives don't exist, but if they did, that's what it would feel like. And so they were coming at me a thousand miles an hour as we were riding, and it was just really painful. And so I tried to catch up to Dana, but the wind was just blowing so hard. I tried to catch up to her, finally did, because I was trying to say, maybe we can find a tree to get underneath until this thing passes. And so I'm pretty frustrated at this moment. You know, this whole look around and be holy moment had just kind of seeped out, and I was frustrated at all the pain that I was experiencing. And so I ride up next to Dana, and she's singing. 
My heart wasn't singing. She was singing. And to top it off, she had found in the recesses of her God-given heart an old late 90s worship song entitled, Send Your Rain. So, while I'm catching up to her, you can't hear a thing because all the wind is blowing and the rain is pouring down and she is yelling at the top of her lungs, Send your rain, O Lord! And she's just singing it. And the song goes, Send your rain, O Lord, to your people. And then it goes, Soften our hearts and pour out your Spirit. Fill us anew, let your rain come. The Lord used that sentence to be like, Sean, you have a hard heart. Her joy was so contagious. And then when she finished singing, she says, hey, do you know the lyrics to yet not I, but Christ in me? I'm still frustrated at this moment. There's not an ounce of holiness in me it didn't feel like. And I was just like, no, I don't know it. And I just let my bike seat backwards. And I began to ask why. Why am I so frustrated? I wasn't feeling very sing-songy at that time. Why was that the case? And as I was riding behind my wife, I, realized I felt like a failure, a spiritual failure. I couldn't muster the joy. The setting was right. The mountains were around. The rain was slowing down. Why was I so Sean-focused? Why couldn't I be joyful? And the Lord began to stir in my heart. Stop trying to produce and be a receiver. Stop setting your mind upon your desires and your failures and just look at me. And in that moment, the Lord brought to my mind the song that Dana asked about, Yet Not I But Christ In Me. I still had no idea what the lyrics were. Just couldn't bring them to mind. So I pull up my phone. I hit that song. And verse by verse by verse, my heart began to melt. The Lord was softening my heart as I looked to Jesus. And I was convicted about the beauty of just praising Him. No production just thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. And just over and over, verse after verse, my heart was softened. And so after I listened to it once, I sped back up next to Dana, and I hit play again, and I started singing out loud those lyrics, and I knew what she would do. She just started singing with me. We had to look like the craziest couple in the world. Good thing there wasn't many people around, but then there was some people around, and we kept going. It was a sweet moment. Sweet moment of worship. I learned a lot about joy that day. In his presence is fullness of joy. Unhurried, abiding in the love of the Lord, that is where joy is found. My self-focus, my perform for significance heart, it was killing my joy. And you know what brought joy back? Repentance. Acts 3 says, if you repent and turn from your sins, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance was saying, I'm running this way towards sin, 
I want to run into the presence of the Lord. What an opportunity. And joy began to flood because I was running towards the Lord. And I also considered how contagious my wife's joy was. Her joy became complete as my joy flipped from sourness to sweetness. The path to joy Paul lays out in Philippians 2 is that an unbiting, that an abiding, unhurried heart is a heart that experiences the joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy of humility. The joy of being fascinated with Jesus. The path to joy is a path of forgetting self and being fascinated with Jesus. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. This path to joy begins through an abiding, unhurried heart. Look at where Paul begins in Philippians chapter 2. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, there's the word, joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. You see what he's doing? This church is fraught with some potential disunity and division, as you see in chapter 4, and he is inviting them to slow down and to remember how good God has been to them. This is a rhetorical question. If the Lord has been good to you, if you have been encouraged, the answer is, yes, you have. It's the assumption. Paul knew the answer. As I shared last week, my hurried accomplishment for significance, heart bent, it, it led me to a life of rushing. Rushing my life and rushing others' life. It kept me from being regularly aware of the presence of God in the moment, like He is right now, here with us. And so Paul understands that pull of the heart and he pulls them back to remember Jesus. Remember His goodness. Because remembering is abiding. Recalling the goodness of the Lord. Look at those verses. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can say, Jesus, He does, He has encouraged me. I have received comfort from His love. I do have fellowship with the Spirit of the living God who lives inside of me through His Word in moment-by-moment times with Him. I receive from His supply. And His Spirit has birthed in me affection and sympathy towards other people. God has done this in my heart. This is what Paul is inviting them into. An abiding unhurried heart of remembering because remembering, recalling the goodness of the Lord is abiding. But let's not get this confused. The discipline of slowing down, slowing down your hurried heart or slowing down your life is not the goal. Being slow is not the goal. The goal is turning every moment into an abiding moment. This is what Paul is inviting them into, it is making every moment of your life, everyday moments, an abiding 
moment where you are aware of His presence and His love. Abiding is growth in awareness. And this is how I fight it. When all of a sudden I become aware that I'm anxious or sad, I use AAA. And I'm not talking about farm team in baseball. AAA. Awareness, abiding, acting. Awareness. I'm aware of these negative emotions or feelings that I have had. This anxiety. And I become aware. Right now you're anxious. You're hurried. And then I just become aware of His presence. Father, you're right here. And what do I do with that? Literally, this can take 30 seconds. I abide. I say, I trust you. I trust you more than myself. I give to you my anxiety. You are the strength that I need. And then I just take the next step. I act. I act because I believe He's with me. I'm not doing it alone. If you don't have a lot of time, that's one recipe. If you have more time, spend more time abiding. But definitely act. Let's be clear. Accomplishment is not bad. Producing is not evil. Paul says, I worked harder than any of you, yet not I, but Christ in me. For those, for those with the proclivity towards laziness, you might need a different encouragement. The emphasis might need to be on the strength of God acting in and through you so that you can act. But for some of you who might have the sickness that I do, where you treat accomplishment as identity and busyness, as a marker of pride and importance, the lesson of Christ's kingdom is receive His affection for you and abide in His love. And Paul says, if you do, it will lead to complete joy. Look at Philippians 2.2. He says, if you have experienced the love of God in your life, then love one another. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. As we give away His love to others, our joy becomes more mature, more complete. Paul is reminding us that a hurried heart is not the only barrier to joy. A hurried, anxious heart is not the only barrier to joy. What else is a barrier to joy is selfish ambition, self-consumption, a proud heart seeking its own glory. And that's why he says the path to joy is through the joy of self-forgetfulness. Look at Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That is vain glory. Don't seek glory for yourself. But in humility, count. The word count means consider. Continually, it's a present tense. Continually have regard for others so do nothing out of selfish ambition or seeking your own glory but in contrast in humility consider others the greek word uses the word for above consider others above yourself if you want any sentence in the bible to be in complete opposition to the world in which we live it's that sentence right there Consider others above yourself. This is why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So what he does is he connects complete joy with humility. And he's telling us, hurry is not the only barrier 
selfish ambition and seeking our own glory is. While on sabbatical, the Lord really used a book by Gavin Ortland called Humility, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness, where I got the title of this point. And the book was so helpful, but it began to show me what Gavin Ortland called a suffocating, self-referential framework to life. It's the burden of self-pity that is always having to show that your life is hard or always needing the praise of other people. That would be self-glory. What about those times when we want what others have? That would be jealousy or selfish ambition. Selfish gain. The time when I elevate myself above others is self-righteousness. Inserting myself into situations. Self-preoccupation. It is suffocating. Now be clear. Considering others above yourself is not a denial of self-care. Learning boundaries. Living in your limits. Taking a day off. Enjoying creation. Worshiping the Lord. Those are all gifts meant to make you more like Christ. But what Paul is talking about here, he is referring to this self preferential, self-referential view of the world. Always regarding yourself, how you look, how you fit in, what image you are putting forth on social media, how your house looks to others, what about the car you drive, what does your life look like as portrayed to the people around you, how much money or status do you have compared to others, the getting ahead mentality, me first, the self-pity that my life is not as good as their life or I'm not as gifted as they are gifted. This is suffocating mine and your joy. And so what is Paul doing? He's saying, I want your joy. Don't give your heart to this selfish ambition this seeking glory for yourself. It's poking holes all over your life where joy is meant to abound and it's starting to leak out. Instead, pursue humility. The Lord used Jesus' interaction with Peter at the end of the book of John to bring this to a very precious spot in my heart. If you remember John chapter 21, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus was crucified. Peter, feeling guilt and shame, the risen Christ comes back and the risen Christ makes it a special point to uniquely and specifically address Peter. And that's what you see in John 21. And Jesus looks at Peter and He says, Do you love Me? And Peter says, You know, Lord, that I love you. And Jesus looks at him and says, feed my sheep. The first time it could be like water to a parched throat because he probably felt, I'm unusable anymore. 
I abandon the Lord of glory at His most urgent time of need. I cannot be used anymore. And Jesus looks at him and says, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. But then Jesus says it two more times, a total of three. Clearly bringing back up to Peter, wanting his mind to go to each denial of Jesus. Who fascinatingly, by the way, was not there and yet knew it happened. And he comes to Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Why did he do that? Because he's rewriting the failure. Jesus is rewriting Peter's failure in a new story. And it made me remember 1 John chapter 3. Listen to these words. Lay them on Peter's heart. Lay them on yours. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. When I hear He knows everything, you get timid, you tremble. He knows everything. All the thoughts, all the selfish ambition, all the glory seeking for myself. He knows everything. And the message is, He's greater than your heart, even though He knows everything. Look at the next word He says in verse 21 of John, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved. How do you do that? How do you know everything that's going on in here and say, you're loved? This is what the human heart longs for more than anything else in the universe. To be fully known and not rejected. To be fully known and fully loved. This is what our Savior did when He died in our place, taking all of the sin, all the selfish ambition, all the glory seeking for self upon His shoulders to say, I love you this much. I am greater than what condemns your heart. I'm greater and I know it all. Peter's life was not throwaway because our Savior gave His life. You are fully known, church, and fully loved, and our God is greater than what should condemn you. But the story goes on. Peter sees out of the corner of his eye, he sees the Apostle John. And Jesus... is still present. And in John 21, 21, Peter sees Jesus and says, Lord, what about that man? Why did he ask that question? Because Jesus had just told Peter that, yes, he will be used for the glory of Jesus' name, but he will also have to die for Jesus. And so Peter's immediate response is comparison. And he looks over at John, what about that guy? Is he going to have to die too? And listen to how Jesus slays the comparative, selfishly ambitious, glory-seeking heart. He says, if it is my will 
that that apostle will remain until I come again. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. What's the assumption? Following Jesus is where you need to be. It's where joy is found. It's where everything that we long for and need is found in Him. He will lead us into joy. And if you have Him, no matter how your life compares to another, you have all that you need. What is that to you? You follow me. The Lord used it. Struck me so deeply to begin to uproot a jealous, selfishly ambitious heart. If I see someone's life or another church that I'm tempted to be jealous over, Gavin Ortland says, can we have just a totally different perspective where we enjoy that God is working in and through their life to build His kingdom like we enjoy a sunrise or a sunset? Think about how you enjoy a mountain view or how you enjoy the ocean coast and you just sit there and you enjoy what you're looking at. He says, that's how we should enjoy one another's lives. Set free from this self-referential comparative framework that paralyzes us and we're just happy that God is at work in your life and His kingdom is being spread and it doesn't matter whether it has my name on it or your name on it. We are following the Lord and that's all we need. It is enough. It's enough. So Paul negatively states, don't pursue selfish ambition or glory for yourself. But then that's the negative side. Positively, he says, let me summarize it in one word, pursue humility. The path to joy is not only through the joy of self-forgetfulness, it's through a humble heart. It's through the heart of humility. It says, in humility, count others above or better than yourself. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. When you hear the word humility... You can think, I'm really not good at that. And if you think you are good at that, you're not good at that, right? And so the talk on humility just feels like a talk on failure. It feels like a boring drudgery. I don't want to go there. But I agree with Tim Keller when he says, there is nothing more relaxing than humility. Have you ever thought about humility that way? Humility as a relief, a release, a sense of rest, relaxing. Why? Because a humble heart is released from the burden of being someone you're not. A humble heart is released from the burden of trying to impress others or needing the approval of others for joy. It's set free. C.S. Lewis describes a humble person this way. He says, quote, 
Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, disingenuous person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap (laughs) who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little jealous or envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not distracted by the burden of constant self-assessment and self-regard. Humility is aiming our lives at a different ambition. Being fascinated with Jesus and living for His glory and desiring His kingdom to spread no matter who it spreads through. It is a release. It is relaxing to not feel the need to be somebody big and important. Because you are known by the King. And as He he testifies to The humble person is a cheerful, joyful person. My uncle has done extensive research in uh, my family's genealogy. And on uh, my mom's side of the family, he's taken it all the way back to the 1200s. And he and I spent a day going through the hills of Tennessee, looking at different places of where family grew up. But he also gave me some, a list of things that, he thought I would be interested in. And it was of a bunch of famous people that were kind of in our lineage. Like, he said, have you ever seen the movie Braveheart? I said, yeah. Okay, well, 1272, Sir William Wallace is my great uncle. I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of fun. He died. Then King John Robert Stuart of Scotland is my 20th great-grandfather. I have, have royal lineage from Scotland in my family. King Henry VIII, probably half of the world, is uh, related to him, kind of like Genghis Khan, but he's famous, right? Right? He's famous. He's my great uncle. Then he tells me, Stephen and Mary Hopkins had three kids, and they were on the Mayflower that came over here to one of the 102 They were in those numbers. And they had a kid on the boat, and they called him Oceanus. I guess that's what you name a kid when you're on the ocean. But I began to think, why why would our heart kind of be fluttering or stirred to think that famous people are in our lineage? When what I spent most of my time on was traveling through the hills of Tennessee to see how most of my family were farmers in a backwoods town that would take a long time to find and more than likely none of you will ever set foot in that part of the world they owned acre upon acre and i visited many cemeteries where my family is buried unknown and yet as i walked around and looked at those tombstones many of them testified to their love for Jesus. 
Why do we get so fascinated with one view and feel almost embarrassed about the other? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when we start living for His kingdom, we no longer feel the burden of having to be impressive. Our identity is not where we came from. It's whose we are now. The King of glory who loves us. Jesus, when He was asked about greatness, He says, the kings, they recline at table. But when I came to you, I came as a servant. And then He tells them in Matthew 18, you want to know what greatness is in my kingdom? And he brings a child over to them. And he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the path to joy. The humility to say Jesus is enough. What's the ambition of the humble heart? If we can be for selfish ambition, what's the ambition of the humble heart? It is for Jesus to get glory, not ourselves. And it's okay to be small and unimpressive. Our world says that is the death nail to your significance. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of that. Your joy is found in my presence not your status in this world. It's okay to be ordinary, at least as the way the world defines it. It takes me back to a little book I read called Dream Small. Where Seth Lewis, the author, quotes 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Listen to how odd this sounds in 2023. When Paul says, make it your ambition... There's our word. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What happened to bigger, faster, stronger, richer, more famous? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we instructed you. And that last sentence is to take you back to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Seth Lewis says this, quote, ambition for a quiet life? The two things look like antonyms in a world where dreams are only ever allowed to be big. When I think of ambition, I immediately picture the people who accomplish big things, build big platforms, and end up with big voices that they can use to express themselves in big ways. A quiet life is what they left behind, not what they aimed for. And yet somehow Paul puts the two together and apparently he's not telling a joke. He actually thinks that a quiet life of prayer, resting in God and receiving His Word, gentleness, hard work, self-control, obedience to God, not seeking glory from people, but living for the pleasure of God, a faithful member of your local church, sharing the Gospel and our very lives to love others, that is worthy of aiming our ambitions at. It doesn't even have to be noticed by anyone else. That, my friends, is the path 
to joy. May we focus our lives on what the world calls smaller things because Jesus says those matter most. I pray that we are tired for, of living for a different value system. That advertisement after advertisement tells us this is where significance rests. But where? Where do we get the strength to not live for selfish ambition, to not live for our own glory, but to live for the glory of God? Where do we get the strength for humility where joy is found? And Paul says, be fascinated with Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's why verse 5 says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul knows just simply strengthening your grip on being humble is not how it works. Many times, the more you think about how humble you are, you've just drained all of the humility. Humility is a very odd thing to pursue. It's awareness of the presence and person and ways of Jesus that changes us. How can we forget ourselves? How can we grow in His awareness? Paul says it's just a different way of viewing the world. It's looking to Jesus, being fascinated with Him above everything else. And so that's why, look at verse 6. He just he spends a lot of time trying to help us look at Jesus. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. He emptied Himself of everything but His godness and His love. And He put on flesh, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself. We look at the humility of Jesus, and what did that humility look like? He was obedient to the Father. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, probably the Old Testament name Yahweh, bestowed upon Jesus. The name we say Jesus, Jesus is better. He is above all things. He's been given the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the heart that follows Jesus said, We want to be set free. We will be set free when that is our ambition. I just 
want the world to know that I love the Father. And so I obey. So as we close, how do we get this heart? Do you remember the beginning? He says, if you've had fellowship with the Spirit, you know what the Spirit's role is? It's to beautify Jesus in your heart. It's to make him beautiful in your heart. Here's a quote from Michael Reeves and Charles Spurgeon. It says this, The Spirit comes with a far deeper purpose. I might know the Son, and in so doing, know the Father, and that I might be like Him. Meaning the whole point is that my eyes look out to Him, not at myself in a mirror or at my rule-keeping. To know Jesus is life, and looking to Him is what enlivens me, gives me full abundant life, realizing this, Charles Spurgeon said, this is the secret to Christian happiness. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers or our doings or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to our soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, and I would add, and find the joy that Christ promises, it must be by looking to Jesus. There's no greater life to look at. And in so doing, you'll be set free. Corey Ten Boom said this, I just want to be like that donkey that Jesus sat on the donkey's back riding into Jerusalem because nobody remembers that donkey. But what happened when that donkey carried Jesus into that city? The people shouted, Hosanna to the highest, praise the king is here. May we live set free in the unhurried presence of the Lord, receiving his love that we might say it is enough to just be a donkey who goes unknown if Jesus is praised and seen and loved. That is where joy is found. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us abiding, unhurried hearts. I ask that you would give us the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And I ask that you would give us a growing awareness of your presence, a growing likeness to Jesus, a humble heart that considers others better than ourselves. And Father, we just ask that right now, not later, right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would warm our hearts and just give us a hunger for Jesus. Father, please, we pray. We pray that the upshot of this moment would be an awareness of your presence and a reorientation of our hearts that says, I want to live for Christ's kingdom.
take just a moment right now of reflection. I do know that the Lord is at work in this place and that he is here. And I take him at his word that he is making his children more like Jesus. And so be set free. Give your heart to Christ. Acknowledge maybe for the first time that you're tired of the burden of the self-focus. Whatever God used in this moment to bring to your mind, don't stuff it in for a later moment. Give it to him in prayer. And I pray that those who have never known Jesus, that you would be changed on the spot. You would confess your sin and confess the enoughness of Jesus. And for those of you who are a child, I pray that you would just say, when my heart condemns me, Father, you are greater than my heart and you know everything. Thank you for loving me. Let's take a moment and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.